This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, a project is launched to restore the identity of villages in PNG whose documents were lost during tribal violence. Everything goes down in flames and it's common to lose things, important documents, whether this be passport, national identity card, their cash in the house, that gets burnt as well. Meanwhile, a trial allowing the the commercial importation of kava is underway in Australia and Vanuatu wants to be a major supplier. And we chat to a Fiji bodybuilder whose rapid rise in the sport has come post-pregnancy. All that and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. But first, fresh allegations have surfaced against Fiji retail giant Carpenters after its managing director admitted to holding the passports of foreign workers. Managing director Daniel Whippy has now retracted the comments, stating they were made in jest at a business conference last week. But unionists warn this could just be the tip of the iceberg, as Marion Farr reports. With a smile on his face, leaning back in his chair, Daniel Whippy took the floor. We have been um, uh, recruiting employees from Bangladesh, Philippines, and we are now trying to get out of uh, India. The managing director of one of Fiji's largest retail corporations, Carpenters Fiji Limited, was speaking at the multi-stakeholder dialogue on the Fijian economy last week. One thing with importing, getting these uh, workers from overseas is that you are guaranteed that they are there from 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday, 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and they're going to work overtime. We house them, we pay their fare, we are guaranteed 100% attendance and we keep their passports. The comments, captured on video and circulated widely on social media, sparked outrage in Fiji. Felix Anthony, National Secretary of the Fiji Trade Union Congress, says retaining the passports of foreign workers is a clear breach of labour laws. I was shocked to hear that he saw nothing wrong in so joyfully announcing that they get workers from abroad and actually hold on to their passports. Now, that is totally unacceptable. And by ILO definitions, that is forced uh, labour. Carpenter's group is trying to hose down the outrage sparked by its own managing director. In a statement, Head of Human Resources Pawan Sharma says the company never has and never will keep passports belonging to foreign workers. Mr Whippy has also retracted his comment, saying it was nothing more than an attempt to inject humour into the conversation. In a statement, he apologised for the remark, saying it was not interpreted in the spirit he intended. FTUC boss Felix Anthony still isn't happy. I don't think this is a joking matter at all. This is a serious matter in regards to employment of foreigners. And we have taken this very seriously, which is why we've called upon government to investigate this matter. Carpenters has operated in Fiji for more than 150 years, with businesses across the retail, automotive, property and shipping sectors. Last week, Home Affairs Minister Pio Tikoduadua ordered a multi-agency investigation into the company, saying any mistreatment of workers would not be tolerated. 
Mr Anthony wants other issues to be investigated. For instance, I am aware that when Carpenter's employees apprentices, they actually bond them with an exorbitant sum. One of the contracts that I have seen has bonded a apprentice should they leave or not complete their apprenticeship for about twenty, twenty or thirty thousand uh, dollars, which is which is ridiculous and, and and does not conform with our apprenticeship laws whatsoever. ABC has obtained a copy of the contract issued by Carpenters. It states that if the apprentice does not complete the training program and subsequent three years employment for any reason, they have to pay the company thirty thousand Fijian dollars. Fijian-born contract lawyer Donald Gordon says that raises red flags. There's no reference to how it's been calculated. It just seems to be a standard clause that's put in and says that, well, if you don't achieve this particular benchmark uh, for the apprenticeship or if you don't stay for so many years, then you have to just pay this amount to carpenters. Under Fijian law, bonds cannot be excessive or generalised and must be calculated in the context of each specific employment. Mr Gordon says the issue has landed other Fijian employers in trouble. There's a very recent case which I would encourage anyone who's interested in this area to have a look at, which is a 2021 Fiji High Court decision of Fuji Xerox versus Sharma, where a $25,000 bond for five years was deemed to be illegal and unenforceable. And the court went further and said that Employment terms and the right to resign cannot be restricted by bonds and cannot create an enslavement on the employee. Mr Gordon believes the carpenter's contract may be illegal. I would always advise persons who are you know, made to sign a bond or a contract of employment like this to get some good legal advice. Get some legal advice about the validity, about the enforceability and about whether the bond is lawful and correct in this particular situation. But on, on my reading of it, this, 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 this bond clause goes against the Sharma case and would be illegal. ABC has contacted Carpenters in relation to the bond clause, but has not received a response. But it's not the first time the company has faced legal scrutiny. In 2013, Carpenters was found to have unfairly dismissed General Operations Manager Sanjay Sandeep Lal. In her decision, Judge Anjalawati referred to unchallenged evidence that Daniel Whippy put Mr Lal on a stop departure order, preventing him from leaving Fiji. The judge said this was unfair and in bad faith because there were no charges against Mr Lal that would justify a stop departure. Others have also hit back at comments Mr Whippy made about Indigenous Fijian employees last week. In his speech, the GM implied locals would not turn up to work on time. Avendra Selesh, a former heavy machinery operator for Carpenters, says the remarks are offensive. To me it's a joke because there's a lot of skilled people here. Mr Selesh says he left the company after a few months due to poor wages. Pay them according to their skill. I mean, you give them a decent wage. Felix Anthony from the Fiji Trade Union Congress believes the issue goes beyond a single company. This is becoming a trend in Fiji where they prefer workers from Bangladesh, uh, workers from India and Philippines. Uh, It's simply because it works out cheaper for them and they don't have any hassles. He says that means locals are losing out. I mean, we have a lot of qualified people in this country uh, who can work but are not given the opportunity. He wants the country's immigration and labour laws to be strengthened. Currently, 
any foreigner can walk into Fiji and work without a working permit for 21 days. That becomes a stepping stone, and all they need to do is go out and come back again, and you get another 21 days. I believe that anyone who does want to come and work in this country ought to be required to apply for a work permit before they even commence work. Felix Anthony, National Secretary of the Fiji Trade Union Congress, ending that report by Marion Farr. Have you thought about opening a new bank account or applying for a new job without your ID? Well, that's what some villagers are facing in Papua New Guinea's highlands after their identity documents were lost during tribal violence. Tribal violence has escalated in the region over the last 20 years, with estimates 30,000 people were displaced last year alone. As Dubrovka Volodair reports, a new project run by two women is aiming to help those affected get their identities back. When tribal violence broke out in Edward Omenefa's village in PNG's Eastern Highland province in September last year, he fled for his life. I rushed out and left my wallet and lost my NID card and driver's license. Mr. Omenefa was among about 2,000 people who were displaced from their villages during the clashes. He wants to rebuild his life, but eight months on... It's hard without his ID. An ID card. I haven't applied for one yet. I want to apply for a new one, but the process takes a long time and I don't want to go through that lengthy process. The difficulty is with the NID card when accessing banking services like opening accounts or other queries, especially for identification, and that requires two forms of ID. Dr. Elizabeth Koppel from the National Research Institute says it's a common story during upheavals. Everything goes down in flames and it's common to lose things, important documents, whether this be passports, national identity cards, they have cash in their house, that gets burnt as well. Someone loses all those things, you know, they have to go back and start from a clean slate. So literally they'll be living at the mercy of other people and to apply for new documents, all of that, you know, it takes our time, it takes money. While common, she says it's an issue that's often overlooked. That's because disaster response teams usually focus on providing shelter, food and other necessities to the affected families in the aftermath of tribal fighting, rather than lost documents. That's an area that is uh, overlooked by those that are leading the you know, assessment as well as relief and support to the communities that are affected in such emergency. The charity Oxfam responded to the outbreak of violence that affected Mr. Omenefa's village. Its country coordinator, Philip Kupo, is based in Eastern Highlands. I have seen you know, most of the people coming back into their homes, trying to put up shelter, and then uh, with support from our partners, especially the Provincial Disaster Office, they have distributed some you know, uh, relief items. He says lost identities is not something they've ever really considered. That's something that, uh, for myself, I have been you know, involved in uh, relief assistance for a decade now, but I haven't heard of it, and I think it's a significant area where we need to you know, put focus and priority as well. But others are stepping in to help. Former Education Department official Dorothy Jolly got involved after helping two students get their academic results after the original copies were burned. 
Now she's helping others and she and colleague Lisa Yappe are creating a database of people who need new IDs. What we're doing is we identified leaders in the village. In the village, they have a community that's working on um, peace restoration. So partnering with them and we've asked them to identify or do a listing of all those that have lost their school certificates like grade 10, grade 12 certificates or NID, national identity cards and certificates. It got banned during that time. So they're helping us doing that. The pair have identified an estimated 200 passports, 50 school certificates and a few handful of birth certificates and driver's licenses, which were destroyed. We've got some lists so far. We're just waiting for other clans also within the community to submit. Then we will uh, be liaising with the government organizations to, to work with them to help these village people. Many villagers don't have the means to travel the long distance to apply for the documents and they don't have phone or internet access to communicate with the relevant departments once an application has been lodged. They really need our help. Most of the offices are located here in Mosby. To obtain those documents. Back in Eastern Highlands, Edward Omenefa appreciates the help. After going through the trauma of losing our belongings, I'm so pleased about the work that Dorothy is doing. And he surely won't be the only one. The Brovka Volodair reporting with additional reporting by Hugo Hodge and Thekla Gunga in Port Moresby. It's that time of the morning where we look at what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Liam Fox. Liam, good morning. Good morning, Kyle. Uh, Well, first, let's go to Tonga, where I understand it was a fiery day in the nation's parliament yesterday. It was. According to Kineva Tonga, there was uh, challenges to fistfights and swearing yesterday in Tonga's parliament. Uh, One MP challenged another to a fistfight. Another was caught swearing on a hot microphone during the parliamentary live stream. Uh, According to Kineva Tonga, during a debate about the budget, MP Piveni Pukala accused the government of falsifying the budget. At that point, another MP, Johnny Tayoni, intervened, asked the chairman, Lord Tui Laikepa, to stop Pukala from speaking. Uh, (laughs) Pukala responded by challenging Tayoni to a fight. Uh, The chairman then got security to remove Pukala from parliament altogether. And it was during this uh, tete-a-tete that uh, Tayoni could be heard uh, swearing in Tongan uh, over the uh, live uh, stream of the parliamentary proceedings. Um, No action was taken against uh, Tayoni for the swearing, but uh, Pukala was suspended from Parliament for one day. Uh, The chairman, Lord Tui Lakepa, said he could have suspended him for 14, but uh, chose to suspend him for one day instead. And according to Kineva Tonga, there was uh, a number of people commenting on social media that Perhaps the uh, chairman should have taken action against uh, uh, Tyone as well for his swearing, uh, but that didn't uh, happen. And uh, again, according to Kineva Tonga, uh, it's quoted in its uh, uh, reports on this incident saying, 
This incident highlights the tension that exists in Tongan politics and raises questions about the role of Parliament in holding the government accountable. Yeah, absolutely. Only one day suspension. I think many would probably say that he, he got off somewhat lightly considering the uh, the fireworks that uh, that many would have been bear witness to, particularly on the live stream. I'm sure that would have made a, uh, a, a riveting watch. Um, Maybe you would have got more if it actually uh, descended into an actual fist, fist fight, but uh, just threatening is, is just a one-day offence. I dare say you're right. Um, let's move on to Fiji, where the military says three soldiers have been arrested in Israel on drug smuggling allegations. Yeah, that's right. According to the Fiji military, uh, three soldiers serving with the Fiji Battalion uh, under the United Nations Disengagement Observer Force, or UNDOF, in Golan Heights, were detained by Israeli authorities last Sunday for allegations of drug smuggling. Uh, the commander, Major General Rojone Kolonua, said the soldiers were detained at the Jordan-Israeli border after they were returning for leave uh, in Jordan. Uh, a report out of Israel says that the soldiers were detained for smuggling liquid cocaine. Uh, the commander said the force has a zero-tolerance stance on any criminal activities and the soldiers concerned will be dealt with in accordance with uh, the military law and laws of Fiji and also Fijian military investigators are heading to Israel to investigate as well. Yeah, concerning one there for those three soldiers uh, involved. And finally, back to Tonga for a uh, for what sounds like a, a happier story. Uh, it's been announced the uh, the National Rugby League team will host its first test matches on home soil for several years. Is that right? Almost. The, the rugby union team, uh, the Akali Tahi, will be uh, hosting its first matches on home soil. Um, They'll be playing Canada on the 10th and 15th of August at uh, Tuofiva Stadium. Uh, that'll be the first time Tonga has hosted uh, test matches on home soil since 2017. Uh, so great news there. And it'll also be a final warm-up uh, ahead of their campaign in France at the Rugby World Cup. It'll be a great opportunity for local fans to see them in action. As we've heard on our program, and particularly the sports program last Friday, there's a lot of excitement surrounding this team. There's a number of uh, ex-Wallabies and All Blacks in the squad. And while they're in a tough pool at the uh, the World Cup, uh, there's a lot of excitement uh, for the potential that they could bring. Yeah, it's going to be a tough game for, uh, for Canada, I'm sure. But uh, I can't wait to tune in to see what happens on that one. Liam, thank you very much for joining us today on NewsWrap. My pleasure. That was Liam Fox reporting there. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Well, Vanuatu wants to move up the ladder of the Pacific Island countries, exporting the most carver to Australia. Australia is three quarters of the way through its trial of allowing the commercial importation of carver. Figures from last October showed 147 tonnes of carver had arrived in Australia up to that time, with 70 tonnes from Tonga and 44 tonnes from Fiji. Vanuatu came in third with just under 20 tonnes. Earlier this month, a trade delegation from Vanuatu visited Brisbane looking at ways to boost the country's exports. At the discussion was Cameron McLeod, founder of the Australian Carver Shop, and he joins us on the line now. Cameron, welcome to the show. 
Morning, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. I love talking about cover. Let, let's just start firstly. How did you get into the business? Look, I've resided in Port Vila for just a shy of 15 years and was drinking cava for most of that, worked for a couple of years uh, in another industry and then met my business partner over there at a cava bar of all places and um, sort of switched switched trades or industries, I guess. And uh, ever since then, I've just been engaged in, in the carver industry, doing things such as carver extracts, um, value-added carver products. We set up a retail carver store in Port Vila and, and a number of other, I guess, not just traditional carver uh, industry projects, but more sort of, um, I, I guess, pu- pushing the edge in development of Carver. I tried Carver for the first time myself recently, actually. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm curious to know what um, what, what hooked you on it? Oh, I, I guess the just the relaxing effect. Like at the end of the day in Port Vila, as a lot of your listeners will know, like everyone punches the clock and then heads over to the Carver bar and has a few shells. And the, the engagement within that environment it's such an easygoing social tonic without the nasty sort of i guess byproducts and by effects of alcohol um and a great sort of leveler as well so you're sitting at a car bar having a few shells and you'll be you know having a chat with a magistrate on one side and a local labor on the other and it just sort of brings everyone together um yeah now, Vanuatu obviously wants to move up the ladder of exporters. You were at a, a delegation recently. I suppose, why is Vanuatu um, sitting third on the ladder of exporters to Australia at the moment with only 20 tonnes? Yeah, look, a few reasons there. So, first of all, um, the broader awareness of Carver in Australia is within the Pacific community, right? So, um, And they're more familiar with the Fiji and Tongan varieties. So the initial uptake in the market was in that space. Uh, and there's also a price point component there. So Vanuatu's carbon is a little bit more expensive um, and therefore, you know, cost of living crisis and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, it, people are a little bit, you know, sort of put off by the price, I guess, because it's marginally more expensive. Um, but there are a lot of benefits and a lot of positives within the Vanuatu carver industry, which can see it expand in Australia. And what what kind of per commercial potential do, um, does Vanuatu see in Australia? Well, look, since it, the phase two carver trial started, um, what we've seen is, you know, obviously the Pacific Island community are wrapped and fantastic. Um, what we're now seeing is a more, I guess, a market maturity happening with non-Pacific Island Aussies sort of enjoying Carver and becoming more aware of it. So Vanuatu is in a position there too with a high-end quality product to really sort of make advances in that market. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans. I'm chatting with Cameron McLeod, the founder of the Australian Carver Shop. We're discussing the importation of Carver to Australia and uh, and Vanuatu's plans to increase its exports. Now, you mentioned before there is a little bit of competition uh, in in those exports to Australia. Is there anything that differentiates Vanuatu's Carver from that grown in, say, Tonga or Fiji? Look, (coughs) Vanuatu Carver sometimes is given a an incorrect tag suggesting that it's it's stronger. Um, it, it's not. A, that's more about the preparation ratios and the carver custom and culture from the different countries. What it does have that's different to the other carver types from Fiji and Tonga is that most of the varieties from Vanuatu have a, I guess, more of a euphoric 
effect than mm. a relaxing effect. Um, and so that's a point of difference, right, I guess, for Vanuatu Kava. And, you know, I'm not here to extol just the virtues of Vanuatu Kava. Fiji and Thai Kava's, the premium ones are excellent as well. But, yeah, I mean, there's a position there for Vanuatu to springboard off of that euphoric effect that most of their cultivars and varieties have. Now, we're three quarters of the way through uh, this trial. I guess just firstly, how would you say uh, the trial is going and, and do you think it will become a, a permanent thing? Uh, look, from our perspective and also, I guess, you know, looking at the industry and connect contacts that we have within it, it's been a, a, just a, a smash success. Um, the quarantine side of things um, has been a success re nullifying any inferior product as far as we know coming into Australia um, the wider acceptance of carver is the bigger picture there so fantastic the Pacific Island communities now have access to carver from you know throughout the Pacific but what we're seeing is the the wider community ad- adopting carver and and picking up on the benefits of it um, we'd love to see the <laughs> the phase two trial extended past 20 into 2023 and past 2023 and beyond um i guess all the people in the industry are just sort of waiting for what the framework is going to look like from the government um as to what happens post 2023 and will that be coming up for review um anytime soon do you know uh well yeah the end of this year is the end of the phase two carver trial um and we are expecting some indication from the government over the next few months as to what it will look like post-2023. And I guess what are the... Um, we, yeah, sorry, keep going. Well, yeah, we, we, we're unsure at this stage as to what the government's position will be. Uh, obviously, everyone in the space is hoping that they'll continue along a similar model or keep the same model. And how do you increase Australians' uh, recognition or awareness uh, of Carver? Do you need sort of a, a whole industry campaign? I guess what I imagine there's probably some challenges in, in marketing it uh, to Australia. Look, yeah, look, the, the great parallel there is the US, which in you know back in you know, 2002 there were only a few online vendors and one Carver bar, and through organic you know growth, um, it's now like a just a a behemoth of an industry over there. Um, I think if we were to accelerate that in Australia, um, simple things like video promotion, which we discussed with the trade delegation, can be utilised to bring a wider awareness to whether it's carver in general or carver from a specific country of origin. Yeah, I suppose the challenge is, is moving on from, I guess, uh, making it that that sort of novelty kind of drink is something that's more mainstream, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You'll never be able to bridge the gap completely to the equivalent of, you know, a beer or so forth. But just becoming, bringing a broader awareness is the, I guess, the next step. And that's a Vanuatu-focused thing as it relates to lifting up their percentage on exports into the country Um, and can be utilised using the the talented new Vanuatu musicians and video producers over there presently to really, you know, bring a promotional and marketing campaign forward that, alerts and installs the virtues of Vanuatu Carver. Yeah, I'm sure many would say it probably goes hand in hand with a beer uh, to be enjoyed and there's, I'm sure there's many, many ways to enjoy it. Um, Cameron, that's all we've got time for today, but uh, good luck going forward with the rest of the trial and uh, we're looking forward to, to see what happens. Pleasure, Liam. Thanks for having us this morning. Have a great day. 
That was Cameron McLeod, founder of the Australian Carver Shop. Well, bodybuilding in the Pacific is a rare choice for women to take up. However, Jamie Lee Mitchell has crushed all stereotypes and has been into bodybuilding for the last four years, entering competitions in New Zealand and Fiji. She blames Fiji bodybuilding sensation and partner Jordan Pillay as the main reason she got into the sport after she fell pregnant, and she joins us on the line now. Jamie, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Kyle. Thank you for having me today. Not a problem. The timing's actually pretty good. I just finished watching the, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, documentary on Netflix, and I'm, I'm quite inspired myself at the moment to, uh, to get into bodybuilding. But tell me, h- how did you get into the sport? <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I actually also watched that uh, documentary as well. It's very inspiring, very, and I really do recommend a lot of people to, to watch that as well. Um, so, yeah, getting back to your question on uh, why I did get into this sport, I, I like I had mentioned in... Uh, In my previous article, I had taken up uh, many other sports before, including swimming, athletics, netball also is one of them. And over the years, um, I started dating Jordan and I continued a very light workouts like running and stuff. But really, I did not know anything about bodybuilding. So once I did meet Jordan and he was uh, more uh, more of a gym fanatic and knew more details about machines. So he taught me and he... uh, he took the time to teach me about dieting and how training works and how a proper workout should be. And from there, I just uh, fell in love with the machine, fell in love with the, the progress that I was making and seeing real results on my physique after giving birth. It mentally set me in the right place. I felt so inspired. I felt so confident. And this sport has just has just grown um so much in my heart over the years because I I feel that um, not many women take it up because it mentally it's not very easy to know that um, you have to be disciplined you have to be um, on top of your game you have to make sure. Well, looks like we've uh, we've lost uh, Jamie there. We were chatting with uh, Jamie Lee Mitchell, who is a, bo- a Fijian-born bodybuilder. She was talking all about her journey into the sport before we uh, lost her on the line, but I understand she's back now. Jamie, are you there? Yes, yes, I'm here. Sorry about that. No, not a problem, Matt. That's the challenges with uh, with live radio sometimes. Some things are simply unpredictable. But um, one of the things that I found yeah, particularly inspiring about your story is the timing of when you took up the sport after you, you fell pregnant. I imagine that would have come with, with its own challenges. Oh, yes, it came with so many challenges. Uh, firstly, because we were not even financially stable. I, I uh, got pregnant unexpectedly and my partner, Jordan, was not earning very well as well. But he did love the sport and just um, being there physically, watching him every day, that sweat and tears and that um, dieting that he had to go through, it just, uh, I told him, even though I'm pregnant, I want you to continue this. I see the fire that burns in you. I cannot let anyone or anything take this away from you. And he continued, he pushed through. We um, we uh, were able to balance our baby and, and ourselves. Actually, we live alone. We have no support. We, we rent on our own. We take care of our baby. We pay her nannies. And we also have a personal training business. So like I was uh, mentioning earlier, everything needs to be on top of your game. Everything needs to be on time. And I think because we have been consistently doing that for the past four years, um, everything the hard work is starting to slowly blossom and 
I'm so proud. I'm so proud of how far Jordan has come. I'm so proud of how far I've been able to come because it's not been easy um, having to have time for baby because she's only four years old and she also has been so understanding towards the sport and all the sacrifices we need to to do for this sport. Did We're you, so blessed to have her. Did you see the changes in your body when you first started out? Did, did it happen relatively fast? Because I imagine think something like bodybuilding, it's very much probably a marathon as opposed to a sprint. That is absolutely correct. So I would say um, bodybuilding is more of a marathon and it's more of a lifestyle. And like uh, you, you don't have to, um, what you need to learn about bodybuilding is that uh, you need to be able to stay consistent and just enjoy the process as you go through. And I'm telling you, if you have the best guidance and uh, I saw, I actually saw changes when I started performing and um, uh, training more. And after COVID, uh, I I took part in the New Zealand show only because I had that year gap of COVID where I really trained really hard. And it took about a year for me to really transform my body into physique. I could see some difference that will be able to compete on the stage. It sounds like there was a real mindfulness element to it as well. You mentioned some of those hardships that you went through, uh, you know, the financial difficulties, being a new mother and things like that. I imagine, did bodybuilding kind of offer a little bit of a, I guess, a release um, to, uh, to help balance out your life in a way? It really did. It, it uh, showed, it put everything into perspective, actually. I was able to fully focus on a routine. And because of the routine I had, because of the... Uh, routine I had, I was able to uh, just push through every day knowing that I had uh, a to-do list to get done. And I just kept consistent at that. And then I did see changes over time and it was really happy. You're, list- really good. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans, and I'm chatting with Fijian-born bodybuilder Jamie Lee Mitchell, and we're talking about her, her entry into the sport, and we're about to chat about her rapid rise through the ranks. Now, Jamie, just on that, I understand you won your first ever competition back in 2020. When I say your first competition, it was the first competition you'd ever competed in. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, that's correct. I actually competed uh, under the bikini category, and um, that was the first competition that happened until COVID. So um, after competing, I just took that year off to really focus on myself before entering the New Zealand show, the Auckland Champs. And that was an IFBB show. It was no longer a local show. So getting into that um, into that uh, international comp- uh, competition was, was very difficult because I did not know what to expect. And all I did was just focus on what Jordan was telling me and and um, teaching myself the posing routines on YouTube because nobody teaches anything here. So we basically had to learn everything from scratch and from online. And yeah, I was able to come through with the with the the best package I've ever brought for myself. And I was able to place fifth in the Auckland Championships in the bikini category. I was really really happy because first of all, I had no idea. Um, what I needed to do because it was my first international competition and I was happy that I had placed because there were so many competitors that that were there for that uh, championships, which was post-COVID, the first competition post-COVID, there was a lot of athletes that had come. Teaching yourself to, to pose uh, through YouTube and things like that. Look, I'm actually hearing a lot of parallels to this Schwarzenegger uh, documentary, I've got to say. Jamie, is a, is a turn to acting coming up next? Oh, <laughs> oh no, I, I, I never ever looked at uh, myself that far. I'm just telling you my story. This is just, 
how I came to what I'm doing. <laughs> no, maybe, that's... maybe for Australia, I'd like to do a, a whatever it is you mentioned. <laughs> um, now, I imagine there are sort of challenges in terms of keeping up with the sport, you know, costs, dieting, things like that. Is that hard to keep up with? Yes, actually, it really is because um, up until just a couple of months ago, we were not sponsored by any company. And so being able to afford the diet and, and paying for the nanny and paying for our daily fuel and expenses, house expenses, it's pretty tough. But, um, you know, knowing Jordan, he, him being in the classic city category, he has to have a bit more food, a bit more protein and carbs and a bit more of definitely everything else that I'm taking. But, um yeah, we're just so happy that we have, uh, he, sorry, he has a sponsor to be able to take care of um, a lot of the stuff that he uh, he needs in his life. So it was able to put a bit of ease on our uh, finances for some time. And uh, we're just hoping that a lot of other people are able to support us because I definitely know that we will never give up. We will do our best. We have always done our best. And and we just love this sport, and I really can't explain how much I love this sport. <laughs> yeah, look, it's definitely mainstream in certain parts of the world, but what about in the Pacific, and particularly among women? Is there a large take-up? Um, unfortunately, there really isn't a lot of uh, people here in Fiji uh, right now that don't take, that take up bodybuilding. And in the Pacific, I've seen that there are quite a few uh, females that take up the sport as well, but um, I'm not too sure if they are as consistent or if they have the desire to really, really get to that level of being the best version of themselves. I cannot speak on uh, behalf of the other athletes, but I am proud of every female and male athlete that has and uh, gone through the process because I definitely know each athlete, it's always um it's always a very good relief when you uh succeed in a certain area or get through the day and i commend every athlete for all their hard work definitely and for females especially it's not easy because we get a lot of judgments and all you got to know is if you love what you do and you're seeing progress and you want to progress you really need to not worry about what other people say you really need to just just have that positive mindset. I know I'm saying positive and it's not, it, it sounds easier said than done, but really, uh, if you have to just put a positive note beside your bed written so that you wake up every morning seeing it, if that's something that starts you off motivation in the morning, then do so. It starts off with the simplest change in your life, not a drastic change, a simplest change. That's why it's taken me four years to get to finally um, have some recognition in the female side of bodybuilding. Yeah, well, it's, it's an inspiring story, Jamie. And hopefully, yes, yeah, some women have, have out there have listened to, to this program this morning and, and are able to, to heed your advice and, and maybe take up the sport and, and boost some of those numbers. Uh, Jamie, that's all we've got time for today, but we'll definitely keep a lookout for you. And, and hey, look, I hope to see you. Uh, hope, who knows? Might see you in some movies one day. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I hope to be in one of them, yes. And I thank you so much for having me on the show. I was, I'm just so honored to, to, to even be part of this. I'm so honored. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no worries. All the best. That was Jamie Lee Mitchell, a Fijian-born bodybuilder who is, uh, who's really had a rapid rise in the sport since taking it up four years ago. Well, from next month, some psychiatric patients in Australia could be taking psychedelics like MDMA, 
MDMA, sorry, to assist with their condition. The body responsible for training psychiatrists in Australia is, and New Zealand has published its first guidelines for psychedelic-assisted therapy, but clinicians are urging caution, saying so far there's little evidence of their effectiveness. Tom Melville has more. The use of psychedelic drugs to treat psychiatric conditions is controversial. Professor Susan Russell, a cognitive neuropsychologist and researcher from Swinburne University, is running one of Australia's biggest ever clinical trials of the drug psilocybin for people with treatment-resistant depression, and her results have yielded preliminary success. One of the things that strikes me when I review the evidence is there's some very large range of clinical improvements from some people that get absolutely astronomically better to some people that don't get better at all. Advocates of psychedelics, including psilocybin and MDMA, claim they offer a viable treatment pathway for people suffering depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Professor Russell says her research shows promise that these drugs could be effective for some patients. We've been stuck for very many years in terms of mental health treatments for people with treatment-resistant conditions. I mean, that's why they're terming treatment-resistant. All of the tools that are in our tool belt don't work for them. So the fact that psychedelic medicines do seem to be working for a number of people is fantastic. However, they're not working for some people as well. And and that's where I would note a great deal of caution in this field at the moment. And today, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists has released clinical guidelines on how psychedelics should be used on patients. Professor Richard Harvey, chair of the committee which formulated the advice, explains. It's going to take some time to get things set up because this isn't a treatment that can be just delivered in a psychiatrist's rooms. Uh, It's not a treatment that can be taken home. It has to be administered in a hospital type or clinic setting. And the dosing sessions when patients are given these treatments uh, and go into a sort of an altered uh, state of consciousness require there to be two psychotherapists present with you for anything up to six or eight hours. So it's, uh, you know, it's quite a long process. So far, MDMA treatments can only be used for people with post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin only for those with treatment-resistant depression. The way the treatment needs to be administered means there's only a handful of people in the country who at this stage have the capacity to provide it. It takes a lot of clinician hours and is therefore likely to cost a huge amount. Some estimates put the cost of treatment up at around the $25,000 mark. As a result, Professor Richard Harvey doesn't think we're likely to see a flood of patients getting the treatment when it becomes available from July the 1st. We're in the midst of a mental health crisis. We have a shortage of psychiatrists. We have a shortage of psychologists. We definitely have patients with very distressing and disabling PTSD and treatment-resistant depression. But where the resources, the time and the money to deliver this come from is you know, somewhat unknown. Professor Harvey argues that as Australia is one of the first countries anywhere to give the green light to these treatments, that comes with a responsibility to get it right. We're ahead of anywhere else in the world, which is fairly un- unusual that you know, this, this isn't something licensed in the UK or Europe or the US where you would expect it to be available first. So we are leading the way. That puts an enormous responsibility on us to do this properly and to do it safely and to contribute to to the data and the evidence around these treatments. And doctors say the stakes are high if they get it wrong. Patients who present with post-traumatic stress disorder or treatment-resistant depression are often desperate and are searching for a cure. Professor Susan Russell says while the medications do show promise, the vital research to confirm what works, why and for whom is still being done.
We don't want to be rolling out an expensive intervention if it's A, not going to work, or B, actually cause more kind of side effects down the track. Um, these people, as you referred to, are desperate. If it doesn't work, you know, then they're left with thinking, oh my goodness, there's no other medications for me. There's no other interventions for me. And, you know, th this can have long-term ramifications. Cognitive neuropsychologist and researcher from Swinburne University, Professor Susan Russell, ending that report from Tom Melville. Want all the latest Pacific news, sports and entertainment delivered to your inbox every Friday? ABC Pacific is launching a free weekly newsletter with exclusive content from across the Pacific by your favourite ABC Pacific presenters. Be the first to know about upcoming events and competitions in your area, plus much more absolutely free and direct to you. It's easy to sign up. Just go to abc.net.au slash Pacific and enter your email to join today. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat today. Recapping our top stories, Fiji retail giant Carpenters tries to walk back controversial comments made by its managing director, Daniel Whippy, who said the company prefers foreign workers and they keep their passports. You are guaranteed that they're there from 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday, 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and they're going to work overtime. We house them, we pay their fare, we are guaranteed 100% attendance, and we keep their passports. And an Australian importer says there's a lot of potential for Vanuatu Carver to increase its share of the Australian market, currently dominated by product from Tonga and Fiji. What we're now seeing is a more, I guess, a market maturity happening with non-Pacific Island Aussies joining Carver and becoming more aware of it. So Vanuatu is in a position there too with a high-end quality product to really sort of make advances in that market. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they go with those ambitions. Like I said, that's the end of Pacific Beat though. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia because the news is next, followed by Nisha Daily. You'll find all our top stories on our website. Just type Pacific Beat and Radio Australia into your search engine. Have a fantastic morning. Morning.